Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and this is a particularly special episode um, where I talked to Nate Silver about the 2016 election. Typically, I talk to people about their careers. Luckily, um, as many of you know, uh, I already interviewed Nate about his career, which you can check out and should check out on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, but I really wanted to hear about the election and hear about his career now that he's taken 538 to ESPN. So for those of you who are not familiar with Nate, he is, well, Time Magazine described him as one of the world's 100 most influential people. He successfully predicted the outcome of 49 of the 50 states in the 2008 U.S. presidential election. And then he's predicted um, all 50 states um, and D.C., shout out to my hometown, in the 2012 election. Election. So Nate is best known as a data journalist, although I would just consider him a journalist um, who happens to be a brilliant statistician. We actually did talk about his childhood here, and you can see that he was exceptional from the get-go. He has an excellent book I recommend, The Signal and the Noise. And 538, uh, which he created, um, was at the New York Times, and then he left, which is unprecedented or rare, I would say. It was very rare. Um, and then went to ESPN with it. So it was good to talk about how it's been going since he's been there for almost two years. They were incubating it for a while and talk about the election and the fact that I really, I can't sleep. I know I'm, I know I'm not alone. I want to say one very important thing. We recorded this um, Thursday. So it'll be about five to seven days between when you get this Three days after we recorded that, three days, the statistics change. That's how quick they're going. Um, so when we interviewed him, when we, when I, when I and my imaginary friend, when I interviewed him, it was a one in six chance of Trump winning. A one in six chance of Trump winning. That was on October 27th. October 28th, um, the head of the FBI decided to make an announcement um, having no clue whether or not the emails he was combing through and had been combing through for weeks had any evidence of Hillary Clinton doing any wrongdoing. And yet he decided to make this announcement so that he did not look like a coward uh, to the GOP. And that it's not clear whether it's thrown the election. But what is clear is that it's certainly thrown the media into a tailspin. Um, and it's still we're not sure whether those emails have anything to do with Hillary Clinton. I can't imagine um, there are Anthony Weiner's emails. I can't imagine Carlos Danger um, hitting on Hillary Clinton. So uh, my hope is that they are just repeats of previous emails. But just the fact that this election cycle never stops, it's this awful roller coaster. I feel like we all are suffering from one large bout of stomach flu and keep thinking it's over and it's not over. So Nate said one in six. Now he's saying one in four. So I do encourage you to go to 538. Um, it'll get your heart rate up. Uh, they have up to the minute 
changes on the stats. But other than that, everything still stands and the fluctuations. I know we just have to get used to it. But who is supposed to get used to stomach flu? It's just not a way anyone wants to live. Enjoy my interview with the one and only Nate Silver. And it was recorded live at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Welcome back. Thank you. It's really a thrill to have. How many of you, were any of you guys here for the first time that Nate was on? Yes. Um, now it's a scary time, so we're, I'm glad to have you here because it was an emergency. We needed to know. Um, so I want to just start. I heard a story that um, when you were like a toddler, you could already count to 1,000 or 2,000. Did you talk to my parents again? <laughs> <laughs> such a cute picture. <laughs> yeah, so I went to preschool one day and I wanted to figure out how high I could count, which was pretty high, right? So I was at up to like 2,700 or something. My parents like retrieved me for the afternoon, but yeah. Because your teachers like couldn't take it anymore? I mean, I just didn't know how high numbers were, so I just wanted to keep counting. It's amazing. I think most kids felt that way. They just couldn't keep counting. <laughs> it's really remarkable. Like 12 is tricky. 11 and then, t- yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have my nursery school report card on my um, website as a letter of reference, and it says that I could, I could count to, like, 59, but I needed help bridging the 10. So clearly, I, that's, I had memorized to 59 because it's not like it suddenly changes. So um, that shows the differences in our uh, natural abilities, uh, yours and mine. Um, I, sports, I know you're, we're going to talk about politics and you're obsessed with politics, but I feel like sports was actually a bigger love for you. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm obsessed with politics so much yes. as like uh, I get engulfed by politics. Yes. You know what I mean? Okay. And what about with sports? Are you obsessed with them or do you just... No, I actually, like I enjoy sports. Yeah, for sure. Um, I love showing pictures of great Jewish athletes. Oh, yeah. Yes. There we go. <laughs> I will say, I figured out, this is a very money ball type strategy. I figured out in sixth grade, the last year I played, the pitchers couldn't pitch for shit, right? So most kids would, thought it was like not blow their dignity, like just take pitches and get hit by a pitch, right? But I would like lean into every pitch, like never swing at anything. I had a 610 on base percentage and a 125 batting average. Barely what like walk to the base. I could, I could barely swing the best OBP on the team. <laughs> but you do like winning. Okay, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, so I wanted to talk about the transition. It's you're a little older than two years now at ESPN. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to find out. You know, you're an incredibly gifted um, statistician and and journalist, but now you really are a a boss. Um, what is that like? Um. I mean, it's incredibly fulfilling to have people that you work with or work for you do terrific work. And I think we do terrific work in a wide variety of subjects. So we have a great science department. We did a whole feature on guns. We won awards. So it's, it's, it's extremely fulfilling. And in fact, it turns out that having great people around you actually saves you time on net. Even though there is a lot of management, obviously, and you learn that, I mean, you know. How much of your time goes to management, would you say? So I'll tell you, it should be 60%. 
in an election year, it's probably 20 or 25 percent, and wow. that's a deficit you'll have to make up, or I'll have to make up, you know, in the winter. But it should be. I mean, you know, um, you know, people are talented, and and we hire people who are outspoken and who kind of um, have expanded the idea of what data journalism, which is a term I kind of hate, but, you know. Yeah, I really hate that. Like, I feel like you're you're. Well, I wanted to go, like, with evidence-based journalism that's kind of snarky, and... Um, you but, don't work at the National Enquirer. No. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but that's... He can get over it, and so can we. <laughs> but that's what it's really about, right? It's about, it's about evidence, you know? And although it seems like a very... Um, minimal qualification. I mean, saying, look, you have to prove what you write and prove it in a way that's relatively transparent to the reader. I mean, and so, you know, a lot of reporting can fit into that paradigm, absolutely, and feature writing can and everything else. So, you know, I think we've become less narrow um, and, you know, but we're also kind of snobs for for quality. I mean, we publish relatively few things. Yeah, but I love that, that you're taking your time to actually, you know, produce thoughtful pieces instead of pushing your um, everyone who works there to just churn stuff out just because you have to have something new on the web. I mean, it's partly like people do that because they imitate publications like Gawker or like BuzzFeed who are very successful at that. Um, and being the best Gawker... Well, it also best- comes from cable. It comes from the sort of 24-hour cable news, I think, that this idea that you have to have news constantly, I think, initially stemmed from that. Well, one problem is, you know, we have metrics now to see how many people are on our site at any given time. Um, and that can lead you to a paradigm where you optimize for the short term and not for the long term, really, right? We screw things up. We have a reputation for being accurate and getting things approximately right. Again, we screw lots of things up, but, like, we know there's a cost if we have to issue a major correction on a story. Um, and we know that those things happen a lot more often when we rush, when we don't have time to think things through. Um, and, you know, so it's not like we're being irrational in pursuit of slower, kind of higher quality journalism. I just think that, like, it's actually a little bit underrated in the market. Yeah, I mean, The New Yorker is once, once a week, and they also have a web component, but I think there's, there's something to be said about taking your time, particularly when you are doing the type of journalism you are. And as I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of polling, I've never been polled. Have I never been polled because I'm clearly a Democrat, because I'm, you know, a female over 35? Um, I'm, I'm, like, I'm just curious, like, I've never, because I live in New York, like, I never get polled. What, what is the reason that you poll certain people and not others? I mean, I've been polled, by the way, and I've polled. Who's been polling you? When I was... <laughs> when I was 18, I was polled. <laughs> It was some state of Michigan survey about drugs. And my summer job, by the way, in high school was to call people on the phone for these very arduous surveys. There was one for the state of Michigan where it was about people who um, had filed workers' comp claims against Ford or GM. And you had to go through and you're like, can you rate the pain in your pinky on a scale of 1 to 10, right? I mean, it was like a 45-minute long interview and you had to ask people in great detail about which parts of their body were hurting and in which ways, Um, so, you know. How does your pinky feel? I mean, it's fine right now. Okay. Yeah. It's a 10. <laughs> um, but. It's <laughs> pretty good. I think it's the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. My pinky's a 10. <laughs> but in theory, pollsters, the way it used to work is they would literally randomly dial numbers, right? They would randomly dial numbers, and then you have an equal chance of reaching every person. 
Um, that doesn't really work as well anymore when people don't tend to take strangers' phone calls, when most calls are made on a mobile phone. You know, I have my 773 area code from Chicago from when I was nice. a college student, right? Um, so, you know, so that's a challenge, is that do you really get a random sample when you poll people? And that's why we see a lot of disagreement now in the polls. You can find polls showing Clinton 14 points ahead. That's basically Reagan versus Mondale. Or polls finding Trump one point ahead. Um, and believe me, people like those polls that are the big outliers. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but like, I, at least for me, and I, speak, I think I speak on behalf of millions of people, um, I check... The, the percentage of whether Hillary is ahead versus Trump before I even check the weather at this point. <laughs> and it's like so compulsive. And you know, I know that you guys have special apps. I mean, the people are constantly checking your website and there, there are articles and there's a very funny poem on Wired about, uh, you know, I just want Nate Silver to tell me everything's gonna be okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel uh, deified well, that's bad. you don't want to feel deified, right? You want people to think through things for themselves. Um, one reason why we have, we have different versions of the model now this year, polls only and polls plus, which annoys some people. But part of the aim there is to demystify it and say, no, there's not any one magic number. These are algorithms or tools that we build, and they come with assumptions attached. And we'll, we'll defend our assumptions. We think we make good assumptions. And by the way, they're actually more conservative than some other people's. I mean, you can go to places where Trump's has a 1% chance, we think it's probably not right. Um, we have them with a 16% chance, I think, which is a lot higher. Um, you got a, um, a lot of flack, I thought. You got a lot of sort of nipping and biting at you from a lot of journalists who were um, upset that you had gotten the... You'd predict, you'd, you hadn't predicted that Trump would win the ticket, which to me sounded sane and logical um, to not have predicted that. Um, but I, I felt that there were a lot of sort of like backbiting about you got one wrong, and in fact, you had um, gotten one wrong, but everything else you had done really well. And in sports, people's averages aren't usually that high. And I was just curious, why do you think the journalists were so out to like point out that Nate Silver got something wrong? I mean, partly because we kind of had a false image of being, you know, this infallible oracle, which is kind of the opposite of what we do. I mean, every forecast we've made is probabilistic. Um, and a lot of elections kind of wind up in the end, like this one being an 80-20 call, and if you make enough elections, and if you count primaries and, and midterms, you know, we've covered eight or ten elections now, you're overdue to get one wrong. I mean, we got Trump wrong for wrong reasons, I think, and we can talk about that later. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> what were the reasons? Well, so once we had a polling model, we actually, you know, that had Trump winning, right? So it's more when we were kind of acting more pundity, I guess, and not really um, not really looking at the data, but kind of winging it. Um, so there are defenses, but still I think, you know, this is a major, I mean, it's the most shocking development in American political history in my lifetime. I'm 38, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's not like it was just like a minor error where this, you know, the guy with the red hat happened to win the candidate or the nomination said the guy with the green hat or something. I mean, it meant that I think a lot of people, including us, were you know, didn't really understand um, what Republicans were like, what politics are like. I mean, it's really quite I don't shocking. think Republicans know what Republicans are like right now. No, I mean, it's, no. I mean, and part of me feels like the aftermath of this, I mean, you know, people buckle in and deal with this election. It's a crazy election, but people are going to be taking um, years and years to sort out 
the aftermath of this. And I, I hope people realize what a strange time this is and how unexpected and kind of remarkable, not in like a flattering way, but you know, how unusual it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an it's a insane thing to have to, to live through. So you're saying that our post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is really going to be perpetual traumatic dis- stress disorder. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do kind of have a sense that if Clinton wins um, by more than a couple of points, that people will be pretty tired of Trump. I mean, there, there's one loose analogy to, to Sarah Palin, who I think um, perfected some of the trolling of the media. She was actually, actually, by the way, a fairly effective governor for her first couple of years. And a great dancer. And a great dancer, right? Um, <laughs> And someone who came from a working-class background doesn't, who doesn't fake that, right? So there are yeah. things to admire about Sarah Palin that wouldn't apply to Trump. But at the same time, people got really tired of her when she and McCain lost in 2008. People would forget how huge a star Sarah Palin was. And she drove so much coverage, right? Yeah, people she was great so on SNL. With her. In election with... <laughs> well, but in election with Obama and Clinton? I yeah. mean, Obama yes. was, you know kind of big time clickbait too but Sarah Palin just sent things into another stratosphere and she's kind of forgotten about right now um, speaking of stratosphere I'm glad she's been forgotten about mainly she's no Chachi um, but I'm, I'm I'm wondering how you balance these things now because you, you make fun of punditry for all the right reasons I think a, a lot of times um, but now that in addition to ESPN you're also a correspondent on ABC you get um, paid to speak sometimes to um, conservatives. Actually, I wanted to ask a question about that. So you've spoken to re- conservatives and liberals. Who do you um, get paid better by? <laughs> I mean, it depends on how good a job my lecture bureau does. But like, I mean, you know, in general, we don't do a lot of talking to political groups. The thing is, I just say what is on the website, pretty much. I literally put together a deck that has our forecast, and like, I'm not sure why people want to pay for that necessarily. Um, <laughs> but, but they do. Um, but like, it's easier to keep track of things when you kind of tell the same story to every person, you know. And there are issues about. I think one big thing that people have underrated about the selection is the. Um, I'm not sure if invasion of privacy is the right term, but the fact that hacking is now a big yeah. weapon in the arsenal of campaigns or people who want to disrupt American politics and how completely unsecure. Um, people's email systems are and people's corporate networks are. To me, that is else. an invasion of privacy. In terms of the government, it also is just so scary to know that Putin is potentially behind this and it looks like at least um, Russian hackers are definitely behind this. Yeah, and I'm one who says too that if something falls off a truck and a journalist gets it, they should be able to use it, right? So I'll, I'll take that point of view. But it is a little bit scary and that feels like one of the things that will be a permanent part of... Um, of the landscape, regardless of how things turn out in, in two weeks. One of the things that I also admired about you was calling out other journalists for, for not um, emphasizing enough that Trump was inciting violence. Yeah. That they wanted to seem, just because someone has an opinion doesn't mean that it's um, valid, is where I come from. And I felt like they wanted to seem bipartisan, um, or at least not seem like they have an opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, the coverage of Trump has gone through, I think, three or four phases. Um, the first phase was kind of pure amusement value, and he kind of benefited from, on the one hand, um, getting the amount of coverage that a frontrunner gets, but not getting the scrutiny that a frontrunner gets, right? And so it was kind of a happy median for him, and he's very good at taking advantage of, 
of the media and kind of being a troll, right? Um, then you went to a period where he kind of um, figured out he could dictate the coverage. And I remember there was a day when Marco Rubio had a good debate, and then Trump was endorsed by Christie, and everyone forgot about the Rubio storyline. And you know, um, but the coverage has gotten more sophisticated, I think, over time. And so now journalists say, "Oh, look at you know, look at how fact checking has risen." We have. Um, on the bottom line in CNN, you actually have things in parenthesis, and you have, you know, good journalists doing debates. I mean, I think the debate moderators have done a good job under difficult circumstances, and things have gotten smarter, big investigative stories. Um, but if you go back and look at the way Trump was covered um, in the summer last year, in the fall last year, yes. it was kind of crap. You, right. you also said that like sort of 60%, I believe, of the coverage went to Trump when there were 15 other candidates or something like that. Right. And so, you know, Trump is a fascinating story. And people say, well, um, you know, for many reasons, we should cover Trump, right? But the fact is that Kasich and Rubio and all these folks never really got um, vetted all that thoroughly. Um, and so, you know, cover Trump as much as you want. But if you're not able to, to do an adequate job covering the rest of the candidates, then there's some kind of failure of of civic responsibility. I mean, you know, again, I kind of call this all, we had our own problems with how we covered Trump in a prognostication sense. What were those? In 2015. I mean, until about this time a year ago, I mean, we thought he would just wash out, right? We thought the cavalry would come, voters would get more serious, and, and the 20, 25% he had in the polls, you know, maybe he'd keep that, but someone else would, would lap him. Um, and it was really until, you know, November or December when, first of all, it's when we kind of actually launched our model and we saw the skies ahead in the polls in Iowa, New Hampshire. And also, it was when I realized that the Republicans had no plan to deal with Donald Trump. In fact, their plan was to try and take out Ted Cruz in Iowa because they were mad that he hated ethanol subsidies or something, right? And then turn around and decapitate Trump, right? When I began to see reporting like that, I was like, oh, shit right? <laughs> there are no adults in the room, right? The inmates are running the <laughs> asylum. And Donald Trump, um, who thrives under these conditions of chaos, could really win the, the nomination. And we began to backtrack pretty aggressively, but, you know, certainly having stuck our nuts out and saying, hey, you know, look at empiricism, look at history, candidates like this usually fade. I mean, this is one of the big lessons, too, is that, um, you know, journalists definitely tend to grasp at shiny objects sometimes, um, but I do feel like there's uh, a way to overdo it in the other direction, where you say, oh, nothing matters really, you know, campaigns yes. are dictated by economic, and you know, I think that perspective's been, been not very accurate this year. In fact, you know, the polls have been fairly volatile, and they've been volatile in reaction to, to big news events, to debates and conventions, and, um, and I don't know, the pussy tape. Um, <laughs> Are you referring to the one where he was revealed ra ra raping women? Is that tape? Well, I mean, this we kept wrestling, thinking about how to describe this tape, right? And oh, people, oh, the tape where he, he where he explains how to about assault women. Women's, yeah, with yeah. Billy Bush. Okay, yeah. But and we, you know, we evolved from saying, you know, a tape where he made lewd comments about women to saying, no, the the news story there is that he condoned or perhaps described sexually assaulting women, right? And by the way, one thing about coverage of the campaign is that it is very difficult to make coverage decisions where you have a finite amount of resources and you have a very um, complicated story, but, but you can get your language right at least and not obfuscate that women have accused Trump of sexual assault. I mean, that's the proper term for it, right? Yeah. And I think people speaking out, I mean, seeing how much people have spoken out is what's gotten the press to be more thoughtful. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, and uh, again, things have evolved, and I think in a, not a perverse way, but it has kind of revealed some of the flaws of kind of everyone's journalistic model, including 538s, and that's probably a, a good thing in, in the long run. But, you know, like no one has survived um, this year without taking some, some scratches. Um, so I just want to ask, the polls, we're going to look at a couple of your models um, but the polls have said that Hillary is ahead. Let's look at the one that I got today, because um, you guys update all the time. Um, should we be worried? Like, how much is 82.6%? Should we be out there and canvassing? Like, in some ways, I know that knowing that she could win um, incentivizes people to go out and vote, but in other ways, I worry that people will get lazy and not So, vote. So Trump has a 17% chance, and so there are some analogies here that I've become fond of. Okay. Um, it's about a one in six chance. So you have a one in six chance of losing a game of Russian roulette, right? Okay. If I offered you to play Russian roulette, you probably wouldn't do it. No. Um, you know, you're a, you're a professional poker player. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't do it. I mean, you know, one in every seven days is a weekend, right? So the chance yeah. that Trump wins about the same chance that it happens to be a Thursday, for example. So, you know, I think people are... Oh my God, today's a Thursday. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, that's right. I mean, 17% is not that low, right? Um, yeah. I'll also say, too, you know... We so, try, yes, we should, be cautious. we should be cautious. People should be cautious, and they should vote if they're into voting, which I hope people are. What do you mean, if they're into voting? Well, I'm trying to be careful, right? I mean, you know, um, I'm not trying to advocate for... You're not saying who they should vote for, yeah. but, I mean, it's, it but is a privilege to be able to vote. But you shouldn't sit out because you think that the cake is, is baked. I mean, there yeah. are cases where you've had polling errors that are about of the magnitude Trump would need to win. And by the way, there's probably a higher risk of a big polling error than usual this year. We have polls that have a very wide spread. We have a lot of undecided voters. We have lots of swing states, which is good. How can you be undecided at this point? Because you hate both... Can- I mean, it's not like people are like, oh my God, I can't believe my wonderful choices, right? People... Yeah. <laughs> I totally get it. Like, and I voted for Bernie the first round, and I'm like a, a big supporter of Hillary the second round. Like, I'm, 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 I really appreciate democracy, and and then, um, however, I can't equivocate um, any qualms with Hillary with the qualms of Donald Trump. They're just not the same. No, I mean, and that's kind of the fundamental way. I, w- I guess my fundamental critique of the way Trump was covered is like, this is really different, right? And it's not a little bit different. It's like an order of magnitude different. Um, although it also feels like people get fatigued sometimes about, about there being so much coverage of Trump. Um, I'm done. I'm tired. Yeah. Well, this, this last little week and a half stretch here does feel like a little bit of an anticlimax where um, it feels like uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it feels like people aren't changing their minds a whole lot. It does seem like some Republicans are... Um, are coming back into the fold for Trump. So his number's actually up a little bit from a few days ago um, as more Republicans come back to his campaign. Okay, you're giving me an aneurysm. Let's look at the next. <laughs> um, so the next slide is, um, I wanted to, it has the circles. It's not the intestines. Oh, the snake or? Let's yeah. see, yeah, okay. Well, this one is oh, if Trump is... were to win. This slide is if Trump were to win, he has to win all these states? He has to win, no, this is if, yeah, this is like a good Trump map where he can win any of those states, right? But that has him winning North Carolina and Florida. By the way, you're seeing how the Democratic base of power this year is shifting. 
from the west down to the, the south, right? Where okay. North Carolina is a better state for Clinton right now than Ohio. That's unusual, right? Let's go to the, sorry, this one makes me really anxious. Um, let's go to the next slide, which shows the battleground states, the ones that we probably should be going to um, and knocking on people's doors. That's the intestines. Okay, yeah. These are all from 538. I switched it to this side. Um, one of 538's many wonderful, wonderful aspects, I think your greatest, is all of these charts. Um, you get to really, for people who, who don't know a lot about statistics, you make it really accessible, so thank you. So this looks like intestines. I just made it this way. It's usually on its side. Yeah. Well, this is more intestiny when it has that vertical orientation. It's just, I, it's just a suggestion. It's a suggestion. But you see, you get down to Wyoming and West Virginia, you get very irritated, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it shows... Because states tend to move in order. One reason why our model actually gives Trump a better chance than some others is because people are like, well, you know, Clinton can win Pennsylvania if she doesn't win Ohio and whatnot. But all the states tend to move together. If the polls are way off, if they've underestimated Trump voters, then he'll overperform in almost every swing state. So looking at the order of states and saying which are really most essential, so Pennsylvania, Nevada, Florida. I mean, we're not going out on a limb here exactly. Maine. Um, Maine, I- yeah. Iowa, Arizona, And there are some, you know, Utah is kind of interesting and Maine, so it is good. Again, one of the few good things about this election is that you do have 15 or 20 states where people's votes could plausibly make a difference as opposed to 5 or 10. Um, okay. So more Americans have a meaningful vote this year. So what, what can people do to um, ensure that other people go out and vote? Um, you know, letting people know that it's easy to vote is a big thing. One yeah. risk that Trump has actually is telling his people that, oh, your vote's not going to count. I mean, no other campaign would ever do that because, um, you know, that can discourage people. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, voting is not that hard. Yeah. Um, you, you get know, a sticker. You get a sticker. It's like the dentist. Yeah. But less um, painful. But, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, to me it's more a matter of kind of not taking things for granted. Because, you know, again, look, Clinton's in a better position than... Obama was four years ago, but you have to think about what's the magnitude of this election times the probability. 15% is not that low to begin with, but, you know, I mean, this country would more than, would change more than it has um, in, again, in my lifetime if Trump were to be elected president. I mean, frankly, it's going to change. It has changed a lot, and it's different than we thought either way. So it's not like you're going to totally put the genie back in the bottle. Um, But, you know, again, People uh, do all types of things in their lives to avoid 0.15% risks, and this is a 15.0% risk or a 17.0% risk on the latest run of the model. So um, people should think about that carefully. Um, So are you enjoying your celebrity status right now? Is it exhausting? Um, I mean, the the election's exhausting because there wasn't really, like, a a break. Um, There was never really a slow period where, where... until June, the nominations were being contested. You had the conventions in July. Trump started the campaign really early. So, so you know, I'm looking forward to some type of vacation, I think. Um, well, we, we got you some gifts for that. But um, before we do that, I just want to show one clip because I'm just so impressed. You're, you're going um, on all the big dogs talk shows, and I've been so impressed with, with all of them. Can we just show one, one little clip? It's all right, Nate. It's going to be great. It already is. I'm sure I predict that, but... (laughs) You've been wrong lately, so we're okay. 
I'd love when he has to nah, get a cigar. <laughs> By the way, uh, you look great tonight. I love what you've not done with your hair. Thank you. <laughs> what do you call that hairline as a statistician? Is that your margin of error? <laughs> I want you to try to stay calm. I got you a Buddha candle. <laughs> um, and I got you a bunch of bath products for you to just like loofah yourself up after. <laughs> you, and, you and Robbie can, can uh, I got bath salts and all these things. And I got you this book on the origin of sports. I wasn't sure. Do you have this book already? I do not. Okay, no. good. Okay, good. I know you like sports, so I got you um, this also by a, a, a great um, writer, probably a Jewish athlete, Gary Belsky. Um, <laughs> As, as well as some delicious treats from Russ and Daughters. And I am so thrilled that you do what you do. And it is a pleasure and privilege to have you back. And I hope we can have you again and again. So thank you. Definitely. Thank you. Something strange in America. Who are you so, going to call? Nate Silver. That's it for this episode. Um, thank you so much to Alex Siner for recording and editing this thanks to all of you for listening and for coming out to the live shows if you're in new york get your tickets uh november 17th john turturro um december we have an incredible astrophysicist phoebe robinson the comedian poet sarah Kay. february we have edie falco um marge sadie smith and so much more um i'm so delighted to be able to bring you these episodes there are so many podcast episodes that are not recorded live at joe's pub so you are in a special position because you get to hear all the different interviews and for people who don't even know about the podcast, they're lost. Um, or you can tell them. Please do. Please share the love if you like it. Um, please star us and uh, you know write a nice review on iTunes and SoundCloud or bathroom walls. You know anywhere that that might actually help us get more sponsors. And on that note, I really want to thank Russ and Daughters for sponsoring us. Um, again, thanks to all of you for listening. Please go out and vote. Whatever you do on Tuesday, find a way to vote. Find a way to help someone you know if they need help with childcare, whatever it is, um, to get everyone out there. Have a good one. So I will tell you.